Jason, and welcome to Light On, Light Through, episode 61, Authors and Critics, or the Writer-Critic Symbiosis in One Flesh. Well, here's what I'm going to be talking about in this episode of Light On, Light Through. Writers and critics work in a very complex, mutual relationship. Writers need to reach readers, and critics often play a crucial role in that process. Just as a recording usually has to be playing somewhere on the Internet or on a radio station or heard in a movie or a television show to reach its maximum audience of potential buyers. So a short story or a novel is reliant on conduits beyond the work itself to attain its readers. Neither the record company nor the book publisher is ever quite enough. They can inject the work into the great outdoors, give it some circulation, but if the work is to have any chance of achieving lasting impact, any chance at all of being more in the end than just a sheaf of poetry stuck away in some closet, then something more is needed. And that something more can be the spin imparted by one or more reviews. The situation's less acute for magazines, whose individual issues, after all, have a circulation at any given time, almost regardless of any reviews of those issues. But the authors whose stories comprise those science fiction, fantasy magazines, magazines on any subject, still are affected by reviews of their work. After all, a positive review of a short story can presumably boost a novel's sales by the same author. It can improve the author's position to the extent that the review may lead in some way to an award or selection for reprinting in an anthology and at very least can always give a much-needed dose of crucial moral support, which writers are always in the market for. And, of course, conversely, either a negative review or no review at all of even a short work will undoubtedly have a demoralizing impact on any author. The only question is how much. Now, the possibility of a negative review makes the whole enterprise of reviewing and criticism part company from any other kind of promotion, such as, say, a radio station playing a recording, where the only decision to be made regarding the recording is whether to play it or not. In the case of reviews, we have, in addition to the review or not review decision, a whole continuum of species ranging from pans to rave reviews and everything in between, including the review that is just a neutral description of the story, which I guess would be the closest analogy to the playing of an MP3 on on an Internet site or on the radio. So this, in turn, raises the question of whether an author is better off with no review or a negative review. Is the worst publicity indeed no publicity, as the old saying has it? And this is one of the many things that make the writer-critic relationship so intricate and, I think, interesting. 
Meanwhile, on the other side of this uneasy partnership, we have the critics' absolute dependence on the author's work for something to review and or critique. We can thus see the immediate imbalance in this relationship. On the one hand, authors can produce work without any help from critics and reviewers, although without any reviews, the work might not be very widely read. But on the other hand, critics and reviewers are plain and simply out of work and out of luck if they don't have any work from authors to review. This has led many a writer less than pleased by a review to characterize reviewers as parasites who live off writers. The characterization, though, is not really apt, since the author's lesser but still highly significant dependence on the critic is an important part of the author's life. So, all in all, the relationship seems better characterized not as a parasitic relationship, but a symbiotic situation, although a situation in which the partnership is nothing like equal. But things can get really dicey when a given author elects to also be a critic or a reviewer or vice versa. Here we get into a wild territory of conflicting vital interests, not only between two or more people, but sometimes within one person, the author slash critic, him or herself. Now, people do it. In the realm of science fiction, we have the classic examples of Damon Knight and James Blish. And we're going to look in this podcast, however, not at such famous, successful people, but at the possibilities, the dangers, the advantages for the aspiring writer who may want to venture into criticism as a way of getting more established. Let's begin by looking in a bit more detail at the obvious why it might be a bad idea for an author to be a critic and for a critic to be an author, a bad idea that is for both sides of the equation, detrimental to one's primary pursuit, whether that pursuit is writing or reviewing. The problem, in a nutshell, is that the dual identity only exacerbates and extends the conflicts that already exist between author and critic. Consider, for example, the common case of an author aggravated by a negative review. If the author publicly objects to the review, he or she runs the risk of looking like a crybaby. And believe me, I've been tempted many times to publicly object to critical reviews of my work. But worse still, if the objection has merit and the reviewer is made to look bad as a result of it, then the author can bask in the sickly light of knowing that a career-long antagonism may have just been ignited. And, you know, even pointing out naked errors of fact in a review can do more harm than good to the authors. Reviewers, like all human beings, don't appreciate being embarrassed. The bottom line, I think, a negative review is usually a no-win situation for an author. And the best mode of response is usually no response, and whatever quiet, bittersweet pleasure can be taken from at least seeing your name as an author in print, however negative. 
But what happens when this already difficult situation is transformed into a case of two authors slash critics, each of whom negatively reviews the other's work? Now, of course, problems like this don't arise with positive reviews, though other critics may at some point denounce what look to them like mutual admiration societies between two critics and authors. Now, I won't mention any names here, but I know of more than one situation where a young author writing as a critic, seeking to attract some attention, lambasted a book by a more established author who also was a critic. Then later on, maybe even a few years later, the older author reviewing a book by the younger author smashed that book up against the wall, really tore it apart. And, of course, friends of the younger author thought the only reason that the older author did that, or the main reason, was to exact revenge on the younger author for the negative review. And, of course, there's no way of knowing whether something is a hatchet job born of personal animosity or whether or not the critic really didn't like the book. Now, in general, the minute that any critic begins to work as an author, he or she is entering very troubled waters. The critic working as an author puts all works so authored in danger of being slammed, rightly or wrongly, by any other author working as a critic whose work as an author was earlier slammed by the first party to this little dance. In fact, the only chance the critic working as an author has to escape such circumstances is if the second critic has no history as an author. Or, of course, if none of the authors negatively reviewed by the first critic have any vehicles or wherewithal to express their criticism. Nowadays, of course, anybody can put up a criticism on a blog. You don't have to have the criticism published in a magazine. So that aspect is no longer a saving situation, meaning that an author who's angry at a critic for slamming his or her work can at any time instantly become a critic of that other author's work. Now, assuming for the sake of this discussion that a critic author began writing as an author, then this author critic, I think, should take special care not to review the work of another author who also writes as a critic. In other words, if you as an aspiring author want to establish a name for yourself as a critic, Try to make sure that you don't slam someone's book who is also a critic. That's not easy, of course. And probably the most sensible solution for this nasty problem is to keep authoring and reviewing in separate hands. Of course, that might be the most sensible solution, but uh, very often in the real world, it does not happen. And besides, notwithstanding all that I just told you, there may be some benefits to the duality of authors and critics in the same person as well. And I'll get into that after this brief message.
Hello, this is David G. Hartwell. I'm a senior editor at Tor and Forge Books in New York. I've been editing science fiction since 1970. I've edited a lot of people over the course of my career, but I'm pleased to also be the editor of Paul Levinson. I edited his first novel, The Silk Code, and I edited his most recent novel, The Plot Save Socrates, and all the books in between. Author Paul Levinson. All right, let's resume our discussion of authors and critics. I think the single biggest practical benefit to co-mingling, reviewing, and writing, in fact, perhaps the only one, flows from the point of view that I did mention above, that the worst publicity is no publicity. Or as Mae West is supposed to have quipped, I don't care what you say about me as long as you get my name right. Publicity is no doubt synergistic, even exponential in its impact. You see that in viral marketing. Two pieces of publicity, two pieces with one's name in print, have far more impact than just the simple addition of one plus one appearances of one's name in print. And certainly three, four, five appearances have exponential impact. Indeed, the reader who sees an author's name in print for the second time may really just start paying attention to that name then. Or even more likely, the reader won't pay much attention at all until the third or fourth time that the author's name is seen. And public relations experts tell us that simultaneity is an important, perhaps even critical factor, too. If the time between the first and second sighting of a new name on the horizon is too long then the reader may well have all but forgotten about the first sighting, which deprives the second sighting of much impact. In contrast, seeing a name in print everywhere one turns is to have that name jump into instant recognizability in one's head. Of course, the content and the context of the name sightings are factors, too. If you want to be known as an author of science fiction, mystery, any kind of writing, then having your name in print as an author of science fiction stories and novels is clearly the best way to go. Though, it is certainly better to have your name in print for any other reason, if you're a science fiction writer, than just science fiction. Any appearance of your name is better than no appearance. So you should always use every opportunity that you can to get your name in print. But let's face it, unless you're Isaac Asimov, such full-court presses are rarely possible. It's not very likely that you're going to have your name in print or spoken on television in many places at the same time. So for the average person, you're better off getting any opportunity that you can, if you have control over it, to get your name in print. Now, once again, if you get your name in print by critiquing an author who later works as a critic, you are encountering some possible dangers. And there really is no easy answer to which approach you should take. There is an indisputable practical benefit for an author, for any author working as a critic, to get any kind of publicity. But the author working as a critic does best to forget 
just about any other possible ramifications of a positive or negative review and call the shots as they are. In other words, you might do damage by writing a negative review. If that's the case, then think about not writing the review at all. But if you are embarked on a process of writing the review, you're probably better off calling the shots as you see them and not deliberately writing a positive review because if the book or whatever it is you're reviewing doesn't warrant that positive review, you'll look like an idiot. So let's sum up what we've just discussed here. I suppose there are some writers somewhere who write solely, mainly, mostly for the money. You know what? I've never met one. What I have met, and what I think I'm part of as well, is a group of people who, for whatever reasons, love stretching the boundaries, love talking about it in person, on the phone, online, love writing about it. So if you're someone who loves writing... Reviewing and criticism, however second order and distinct from primary writing they may seem to be, are still, after all, uh, forms of writing. It may not be your favorite form of writing. It certainly isn't mine. Fiction and primary scholarly and popular writing are, but that still doesn't make it any less satisfying in its own right when it's about something that satisfies you to write about. And to the extent that reviews and criticism satisfy a part of the writing compulsion, I suspect that most of the pitfalls that we talked about above may, in the end, not make much difference. Because given the chance to write about something that we'd no doubt like to talk about anyway if given a chance, and we're certainly thinking about it, how much are we going to worry about the possible negative impact that might have on our careers as authors? And in the end, ultimately, I think one's impact as an author is based not on whom one might offend or please as a critic, but on the impact of one's stories on the first editors who read it, and then, of course, on readers themselves. With that in mind, my advice to all varieties of authors-slash-critics and critics-slash-authors is this. Take every opportunity that you can to write, including reviewing. When you're reviewing, don't worry about pleasing anyone or any interest except what you feel is right, true, and beautiful. Don't hesitate to slash a story that doesn't measure up to those standards or to praise one that does. Don't worry about who may say what about how your criticism was motivated. Let your text speak for itself. Stand or fall on its own examples and reasons. Good writing, after all, whether fiction, nonfiction, or criticism, in the end transcends criticism. Athens, 2042 AD. She ripped the paper in half, then ripped the halves, 
then ripped what was left again into bits and pieces of history that could have been. Sierra Waters had read once that, years ago, it was thought that men made love for the thrill, while women made love for the sense of connection it gave them. Sierra had always done everything for the thrill. She ripped the paper in half, then ripped the halves, then ripped what was left again into bits and pieces of history that could have been. Entertainment Weekly says the plot to save Socrates is challenging fun. The New York Daily News says it's a Da Vinci-esque thriller. And Curled Up with a Good Book says Sierra Waters is sexy as hell. You can find out more about the plot to save Socrates by Paul Levinson at theplottosavesocrates.com. The Light on Light Through Podcast. And that's the sweet music of our promo suite. And you're going to hear promos from Mike Thinks News, the savviest podcast in town. For Sean Farrell's patio book of my first novel, The Silk Code. We're just about out of time. I look forward to talking to you next time. In the meantime, sit back, relax, and enjoy. the Mike Thinks Podcast, www.mikethinks.com. News and current events with an opinion. The Mike Thinks Podcast. It's the news you missed. www.mikethinks.com. The Locus Award-winning novel by Paul Levinson comes to life in this free podcast novel. Journey into the ancient world. Witness the wonder of ages past and join Phil D'Amato in a struggle against forces both ruthless and unseen. Visit www.thesilkcode.blogspot.com to learn more about the author and the novel. And subscribe today at patiobooks.com.